This morning, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, we're going to be in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, in this time period, God raises up judges uh, as leaders in the nation of Israel, the people of God. And, and don't think of people in robes with gavels. These are military leaders that God appoints and raises to lead the nation of Israel. But before we look into this, I'd like to kind of back up and, and do an overview of the Old Testament. I know there's, the Old Testament is long, and there's a lot in there, but bear with me. Um, I want to do a brief and quick overview of the Old Testament to kind of prepare us for what we're going to look at today and this morning. And so the storyline of the Old Testament is this. The Old Testament is about God's people and God's place for God's purpose. Can y'all say that with me? The overview of the Old Testament is about God's people and God's place for God's purpose. One more time. God's people and God's place for God's purpose. And ultimately, this points us to the need for Jesus to come. The Old Testament, sometimes people like to push it aside, say it's not important for our life. But actually, it's foundational, and it points us to our need for Jesus. The Old Testament is real It's a real story. It's set in real time. It's with real places, and it's with real people. There are some people who believe that it's just figurative, but this is real stories, real happenings. And so uh, the Bible, as we have it in the Old Testament, is broken down into different books, and these books are broken down into different time periods in our Bible history. And so just briefly want to walk through that with you. Genesis is in the beginning. Uh, Genesis literally means beginning. So Genesis is the book of beginnings. There are a lot of new things that happen in the first few chapters of Genesis. The creation and fall is the first uh, Bible period we're going to look at. In the beginning, God created the world, uh, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there was nothing, but God spoke and there was something. Creation, God created the heavens and the earth, life, creatures. He created all men and women equal. We're made in the image of God. In the Imago day, it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, where you're from, you have equal worth uh, in the eyes of the Father. We're made in the image of God. But the Garden of Eden quickly becomes a location for the fall. It wasn't long before sin came into the world and destroyed the, the perfect image that we are to display of the glory of God. Humankind degenerates for generations to come. God judges the world with a flood because of the sin in the world, but he chooses to save one righteous man. There's one man that was considered righteous. His name was Noah, and he spares him and his family, and humankind rebels again at the Tower of Babel. And this results in the division and dispersion of mankind. So we go from the creation and the fall to the next period, which is the patriarchs. These are our our founding fathers, if you will, of our faith through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a new beginning that God establishes with Abraham. He establishes a new covenant with him and his family, and they prosper. However, Abraham's prosperity turns into Israel's slavery through feast and famine. So it wasn't long until God leads them to Egypt, and through Egypt, they, the nation of Israel um, are in captivity. And we see this, we can read this toward the end of Genesis. 
And then we go from the patriarchs to the exodus and conquest. The exodus, of course, is what you think it sounds like. It's the exit from Egypt to the promised land. God uses Moses and leads Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And God gives Israel, uh, through Moses, the law. We have the Ten Commandments. And then we also have the Levitical law that teaches us about holiness and God's standard of righteousness. We have Leviticus in Deuteronomy. He restates the law to a new generation. So we have the exodus from Egypt, but then we also have the conquest. And we read about this in Joshua. Through Joshua, God leads his people to the promised land where they are ruled for a while by judges. And this is the time period. Keep in mind when we go to the text in a few moments, this is the time period that we're going to be looking at. After they enter the promised land, they're ruled for a little while by judges, these military leaders that leads the nation of Israel. The next time period is the monarchy. Eventually, a kingdom is established, epitomized by the King David and his son Solomon. Solomon builds a temple, and the temple becomes the home of the Ark of the Covenant that represents the presence of God in the center of Israel's worship. After Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided into two parts, into the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And during this time, idolatry grows Assyria destroys Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722 B.C. Babylon Babylon destroys Judah, the southern kingdom, in 597 B.C. And then the survivors of that are taken into exile for the next 70 years. And a remnant, uh, those who are are left, find favor in the Babylonian government. And a remnant returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. But Israel still longs for the glory that they saw under King David. And thus, the Old Testament becomes a story without an ending. Because it leads us to the need for the one true king in Jesus. So this morning, I know that was a quick overview of the Old Testament. And in the midst of all of that, we have the writings, the literature, and the prophets, but we're focusing on the time period of the judges after the conquest of the um, promised land. And the purpose is that God's glory may be known to all people through his judgment and through his continuous deliverance. So Judges, the book of Judges, we're going to be in chapter 6, and in this whole book of Judges, we see a constant cycle of oppression and salvation. And this, this cycle is, and you'll, you'll begin to see the de- deterioration of Israel. There's a cycle of where they follow the Lord, but then they relapse. And they turn to other gods. They turn to what's evil in their own hearts. But then that, that relapse turns to ruin for the nation. The ruin leads them to repent The repentance leads to God restoring them, the restoration. The restoration leads to rest. And we see this cycle. It goes over and over again, eight times in the span of Judges 3 through chapter 16. Generations going back through this cycle of repenting, following the Lord, but then turning back to worshiping other gods. So this morning, at the end of Joshua... Joshua, before he dies, he makes this bold stance, this, this bold de- 
decree, and he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Talking about all of Israel. But then after he dies, after the judges start to um, rule and lead the nation of Israel, it's not long before they do what they seem right is in their own hearts. Judges 2, verse 1, it says that, and the angel went up, um, excuse me, verse 11, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in their own sight. And they served the Baals. They've abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so you can see how far they've fallen from a nation that was united under Joshua to worship the Lord to now they all did what was evil in their own hearts. And in chapter 6, where we're going to look in just a moment, there's two perspectives that we're going to see. One is oppression. We see the nation of Israel being oppressed through, because of other nations. But then also we see a calling in a man named Gideon to rise up and to stand as an advocate for the oppressed Israelites. So if you will, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 6 and read this with me. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not even be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. Verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Median. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. We're going to look at this passage and this story. It covers a few chapters. Before we continue, let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word. And Lord, there are times in our life where it's, we're burdened, uh, one with the consequences of sin, and but the, just the pain and, and trials that we face in life, Lord. And I pray that as we look at your word that you'll help us to see freedom from that burden, that we can learn to be yoked with you, that you'll, you came to carry our burden, to lift that off of us. Lord, we love you. Give us wisdom and discernment and clarity in your word today. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. We see just in the first six verses, one thing that we look and we see that judgment always follows sin. Judgment always follows sin. The disobedience of Israel in this passage results in judgment every time. And sometimes it, it, it may seem like that's not fair, and it's not fair of, of God to cast judgment because of the sin in our life, but let's, let's look at the order that this happens. Verse 1, it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. They didn't receive all this oppression and then go, all right, we're going we're gonna to abandon the Lord's teaching because we've been oppressed. No, they abandoned the Lord and, forsake the, and were disobedient 
And so because of that, they're reaping what they sowed. They're reaping the consequences for their sin. Now, it doesn't say that the Lord destroyed the nation of Israel because of that. It says they, he just gave them into the hand of Midian. Right. We've got to understand that the sin in our life, the sin in, in our world, dominates our, our culture, dominates our beings. And, and there are times in our life that we face trouble. And don't, don't let me, um, don't misunderstand that there are things in our life that happen that aren't a result of our sin. Sometimes there are things that happen that are very much the result of the consequences of our sin. But then sometimes it's just because of the falling nature of our world, that, that there's evil and there's darkness in our world, and because of that we're having to face opposition because of that. Nothing necessarily be, uh, of what specific sin that we're in, but sometimes we just face life troubles. Sometimes we just face tribulation in our life. But in this context, Israel faced oppression because of the sin in their life. So we need to take sin in our life carefully. We do not need to look at sin in our life lightly. Verse 6, it says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And look at the first thing they did. It says, And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. I want to encourage you to cry out to God. Regardless of what's going on in your life, if, if, it's, uh, if there's pain and sorrow as a result of your sin, cry out to the Lord. If there's pain and sorrow as a result of just being in a fallen world, cry out to the Lord. And this is what Israel does. In verse 7, we're going to continue. It says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. I want to encourage you. Sometimes we cry out to the Lord. We feel like the Lord's not there. We feel like the Lord doesn't respond to our prayers. I want to encourage you to pay attention. Sometimes it's not as blatant as we'd like it to be. Sometimes the answer from the Lord isn't necessarily what we want. Verse 8, verse 7, they cry out to the Lord. Verse 8, the Lord responds. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all of who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Remember what I said. They were in Egypt, the exodus, the exit from Egypt. But then the conquest in, in, in Joshua is where the Lord gave them land. This is what he's talking about. I brought you out of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. But look at verse 10. It says, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. This is the law. This is part of the law that the Lord gave them. And then look at the end. It says, But you have not obeyed my voice. Did you see that? God's, they cried out to the Lord. God responded. It's probably not what they wanted to hear from the Lord because it's true. It says, you have not obeyed my voice. If we get to verse 11, it says, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat, 
in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Remember, the Midianites would come in and take their produce and destroy their lands. And so they were having to hide uh, to, just to be able to live. And it says Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press. This is something you wouldn't normally do. He says to hide it from the Midianites. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Some translations say, O mighty warrior. Let me encourage you this morning that the truest thing about you is not necessarily your, your job title, your, what you would identify with. It's not what other people think or say about you. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. And in this moment, God speaks truth to Gideon, and he says, O mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And so Gideon responds, Verse 12. Verse 13, excuse me. And he says, Gideon said to him, Please, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the Lord Come, has come to Gideon and says, look, the Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor, a mighty warrior. But then Gideon says, please, come on, where is the Lord? Why has this happened to us? Where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers told us about? Our fathers experienced the provisions. Our father experienced the saving power of the Lord, but I don't see it here. And understand that they had been oppressed for seven years. Sometimes it's easy to deal with the problem when, when it's only been going on for a few, a few short months. But they've been dealing with this for seven years. And now all of a sudden they cry out and the Lord says, Look, you're the, you're the man. You're, I'm with you. You've got the strength in you. And then his response is, he questions he questions the Lord, and it's, it's, it's valid. I think it's, I think it's valid. It's, it's how he felt. It's, it's, it was real. There's a real emotional response. And I think we, there are times in our life that we can relate to this, that there's things going on in our life, and we don't really understand where God is in our situation. There are things in our life that sometimes we feel like God is done with us. And so we look at God's response where he says, I led you up out of Egypt. I, I gave you the land. I delivered you from the hands of the gods of the Amorites. And then in verse 10, it says, but you have not obeyed my voice. And sometimes we read things like this, and, and I, I feel like God is done with Israel. He's fed up. Can you relate to that? I don't know if, if you've ever felt like God was done with you, that God can't do anything for you, that the sin in your life is too great or the problems in your life is too great because you don't see the provisions happening in your life. Can you relate to that? But then the Lord responds. Verse 14, and he says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. I want you to notice something. 
that Gideon is asking God all these questions. Where are you? Why is all of this happening to us? And then God's response isn't an answer to his question. And I feel like, in part, that it's because God has already answered his question. His question is, why is this happening? Where are you? If you remember in verse 10, he says, look, I was with you. I told you the law. I told you how to, to, to live out your life, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so this is, this is the answer to your question. But in, instead of rehashing all of that in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. Save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So instead of kind of going back over the, the reason why the Israel has been oppressed time and time again, he says, Look, I'm calling you out to do something about the problem. I'm going to give you the strength to do something, to stand for the oppressed Israelites. How does Gideon respond to that? I think he responds pretty typical. Verse 15, he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? He says, Behold, my clan, my tribe, is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And I think that's pretty t- typical. Sometimes when God calls us to do something great, when God calls us to live out and to actually be an advocate for those who can't stand up for themselves, sometimes it seems like a noble thing and we, we get excited. But not, not long after that, we start looking at our own weaknesses and our own inabilities and we begin to think that, who am I? How can I actually do something about the problem in the world today? I feel like, that the problem is too great and I can't do anything about it. So I'm not going to, I'm just going to continue to live my life and not do anything about it. A couple, just want to give you a few examples of, uh, of ways that people can be an advocate in today's world. An innocent girl sold into a brothel in India can't stand up for herself. She needs somebody to get her out of this. She can't do anything about it. She needs somebody fighting for her. Somebody who has a mental disability can't uh, open the doors to get the resources he needs on his own. He needs somebody to go to bat for him. Somebody who is homeless sometimes can't cross the bridges he needs to cross to get out of this. And a lot of times we have this perception that homelessness is full of people who are drug addicts, and that's not necessarily the case. I've met people who have uh, lost their job. Because they've lost their job, they can't make their payments on their house, so the bank forecloses on their house. And now a hardworking individual has gone from working for his family to on the streets because he just can't ends make ends meet and so a lot of times because of his situation he can't cross those bridges to get out of that he needs somebody to walk alongside of him to to cross these bridges a little kid being bullied at school we would think he'd be able to stand up for himself but a lot of times there's discouragement there he needs somebody an older brother an older sister a friend to stand up for himself with him to get out of this a person in an abusive relationship wants to get out and i don't 
truly believe anybody wants to stay in an abusive relationship. But for whatever reason, can't seem to get the strength to, to get out. They need somebody. They need a friend, somebody strong, who's stable to help them get out. An orphan can't just magically find a family. They need somebody actively pursuing them. Same with foster care. And I, w- I just want to share, take a moment and share something about me and my family and my life. A step that we're taking. Uh, Blaine and I recently have uh, started the process of foster care to be foster parents. And this is something that we're crazy scared about. It's something we're excited about. That we There's a lot of unknowns that are... Um, we're about to step into, but this has been on our heart for over a year, and we we just had a, a newborn. He's five months old, so so I'm a I'm a, I'm a pretty veteran parent by now. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm scared to death, and but we know that we can lean on the Lord for guidance. I know that I can lean on our church for support and our family for support to continue to step in faith. And be the person, the, the family that God has called us to, to stand by these kids and be, uh, and to show them the love of Jesus in their life. And an advocate stands up for those, for whatever reason, can't stand up for themselves and walks with them. It's noble, it's godly. It's something that we see in this passage. It's a call on Gideon's life. And sometimes, when we look at the call, it looks too great for us. We begin to look at our own inabilities, our own weaknesses, and say, look, I don't have the time for that. I don't have the, I'm not equipped to do this. I, I can't fit this in my schedule. And we begin to make all these excuses, and we begin to try to figure it out on our own. And when we do that, we leave room for the enemy to come in and to lie to us and say, look, we, you're weak. You can't do this on your own. And if we hear the lies long enough, it won't be long before we start to believe all these lies. And the devil's preaching over us, saying that we've been cursed, we've, we're gone astray, that we can't do it, we can't live in faithfulness to the commands of God. But we forget the rest of the story. And this is what, this is what Gideon says. He says, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan, my tribe is the weakest. I'm the least in my father's household. But isn't that the point of the gospel? That yes, I'm weak. Yes, I, I don't, ha- I'm not the, I'm the least of these. That's, but that's the point that in our weakness, in our inabilities, that God can display the strength of Jesus in you. And so Gideon says, yes, okay, I'll do this. But he asked God to show him a sign to affirm his calling. Verse 17, he says, and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And and wouldn't that be incredible that if we're trying to discern the will of God in our life, that God would just make it super clear in our life? And, And sometimes he does. Sometimes he makes it pretty evident in our life. Sometimes it's not always so clear and we've got to search in scriptures. But I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to affirm in you the calling that he's, he's made on your life. That's what, he, that's what Gideon is doing in verse 17. He's, look, you have found favor in my eyes. 
Show me. Confirm that in my life. So I want to encourage you, if you feel like God is leading you to step out in faith in a certain area, ask God to affirm that. But also pay attention because he will. He will show you. He shows us in his word. He uses people in our life, friendships, the relationships in our small groups to affirm that. He puts opportunities right in front of us. We've just got to be careful to be aware of that. If you'll go to verse 25, this is what he does next. Verse 25, it says, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Astra that is beside it. He's telling Gideon to tear down all these idols. The source of Israel's problem in this context was idol worship. If we look at verse 6, uh, chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 is that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was idol worship. They had these idols that they uh, worshipped before the, the Lord. God told them not to and they disobeyed the Lord. This was the source of their problem. And before Gideon could face the Midianites, he had to cut down the source of the problem. So I want to encourage you this morning to think through your life. Is there any sin in your life that it's keeping you stepping out in faith? Is there any idols that you've created for yourself? Usually we don't have statues that we build up. That's kind of weird in our culture. But an idol is anything that you seek to more than you seek the Lord. This is the first thing he does. See, they're, they're in ruin. They had already relapsed. They're in ruin. And that God is about to restore them because of the repentance through Gideon and cutting down these idols. You go to chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, Gideon is getting ready to face the Midianites. It says in verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, Midianite, the Midianites had about 135,000 troops. And we can conclude in these verses, it says, that Gideon had about 32,000 people. So you can kind of understand where Gideon was coming from when he said, look, my, my tribe is the weakest. We don't have the numbers to face them. But the Lord thought that 32,000 was a little too great. So this is what he said, verse 3 of chapter 7. It says, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from the mount." Gilead, then 22,000 people returned. So they were, he basically said, if any of you are scared, just go home. So 22,000 of the 32,000 left, and it brought them down to 10,000. And the Lord still felt like this is too many people. If you think about it, the odds aren't great, but it was possible for them to defeat uh, the Midianites. But the Lord called them to dwindle down the number to 300 men. So 300 men were faced up against 132,000. If you think about this, this is impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. And when it's impossible, God gets the glory every time. If we look at verse 22 of chapter 7, it's when they actually go up against the Midianites. It says when they blew the, the 300 trumpets, that's the 300 men with Gideon. 
says, The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. It's through the strength of the Lord that God delivered them. And that deliverance leads to rest. See the cycle of relapse, repentance, uh, relapse, ruin, repentance, restoration, and the Lord gives them rest. And chapter 8, verse 28 says, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And I don't know, for, for a lot of us, we've got so much going on in our life. We've got so many burdens, so many commitments in our life. Rest seems to be a pretty good idea. And the Lord gives that to us. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. He makes us lie down by green pastures. That's rest. He gives us rest. He leads us by the still waters. That's peace in our life that the Lord gives us. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. This morning, the rest had to have been great for them because after the seven years of oppression that they were facing, But for the last few moments that we have together, I want to point out the greater picture that's in the story of this passage because the rest didn't last. In verse 33 of chapter 8, it says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berea their God. So it wasn't long after Gideon died that they turned back. The cycle continued. Verse 34, it says, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. See, the, the greater picture of Judges points us to what happens in First and Second Samuel. What happens in First and Second Samuel? Well, we read about the story of David and Goliath. It's awesome victory for the Israelites. And that leads to David being appointed king. And there's a lot of f- fruitful years there. But that's not necessarily the point of First and Second Samuel. In First and Second Samuel, we read about a man who's after God's own heart, who has some major weaknesses, and because of sin, reaps some major effects of his sin that leads us to a need of a perfect king. That's Jesus. So Judges points us to First and Second Samuel, the need for a king. First and Second Samuel points us to the need for a perfect king in Jesus. And so this morning, where do we go from there? How do we, how do we overcome the evil in our life? How do we overcome uh, the times in our life when we feel oppressed? I think we find the answer in First John five. First John five it says for. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So let me encourage you as we close to do things in your life that build your faith, to do things in your life that cultivate your relationship with with Christ. Because Christ in you can overcome this world. Christ in you can overcome the evilness that we see that's all around us. Christ in you can push back darkness in this world. Christ in you can stand as an advocate and be that person that God has called you to be and step out in faith and boldness. Christ in you can overcome temptation. 
So we look at this story of Gideon and the same God that was with Gideon who stood up against the 135,000 men. The same God dwells in you that all who profess faith in Jesus, that in Christ we can overcome this world. Everyone who is born of God has overcome the world. So keep striving and cultivating that relationship with the Lord. And in Christ, you can overcome the world. If we were to ask, you know, what, what does God think of us? Every day uh, in our life, our, our shortcomings, our failures, we try to do our best. What, what does God really think of us? And a lot of times we, we would probably think that, man, God's, God's disappointed in me. You know, I show up for church. I don't always read my Bible like I should. And I've got sin in my life. But those who have professed Christ, faith in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in them. And so God sees you, not for who you, you are, the sin and the shame, but He looks at you and He sees Christ. God sees the best in you because of Christ in you. It's not something that we can disappoint God because of Christ dwelling in you. He's clothed us in righteousness. So I'm going to encourage you to continue to do the things that build your faith and cultivate that relationship with the Lord. Let me pray for us. The Lord, thank you so much for this day, the opportunity we have to look at your word. Lord, I thank you Lord, that you're a stronghold for the oppressed. Lord, that you're a stronghold in times and trouble. Lord, for those of us today who, whose hearts are heavy, Lord, I pray that you'd make provisions in our lives to, to carry the burdens for us. Lord, give us rest. Lord, help us to cry out to you. Lord, I pray that you would show mercy the times that we've brought on the pain for ourselves, that the, the, the consequences that we face as a result of the, our sin, our failure to cherish you above all, Lord, have mercy on us. And Lord, equip us, Lord, for the calling that you've placed in our life. Lord, to stand for others who can't stand for themselves. Lord, to, to take the message of the, the gospel to our friends and family. Lord, equip us and give us the strength. Lord, help us to continue to trust in you. That we give you glory for the, the victories in our life. Lord, we ask this in your name.